Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a wonderful gift it is that you've given to us, that you've promised to us in the cross, full pardon, full forgiveness, as we've sung about. What a gift it is that we have. We look to Christ and we know, we see him no longer hanging there, no longer in the tomb, but resurrected, ascended, living as ruler and king over all things. And because of his resurrection from the dead, we know that our resurrection and unification with him is a sure thing. And that informs the way that we live then today, Father. We're living today now as if we are getting, we are going to be able to enjoy all of eternity with you, spiritually, physically, this, this unification for eternity with you, Father, which we will sing your praises, behold your beauty, and serve you in perfection for all of eternity, Lord. What, what an incredible time it is going to be when those days come. But now, Lord, we ask that you would help us, you would strengthen us, continue to help us have that that vision, the truth of the resurrection seared upon our minds and upon our hearts so that we might hope, rejoice with hope, that we might always uh, be able to endure and persevere and to live, Lord, the way that you call us to live and to rejoice in you and to always have a heart that's framed towards worship of beholding you and lifting you high and magnifying your great name. And so, um, I pray that you would be doing that within us today, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your love for us, which was first. And we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our time this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can uh, turn to Luke chapter 20. We're going to be in verses um, 27 through 40 this morning. Jesus is faced with another question. We saw last week how the Pharisees came to him, posed a question to them, and he answered their question um, very well. And one of the things that he does in doing so is he establishes himself again as the authority. It seems to be that, you know, Jesus just continues to win. Every time anybody comes against him, he wins. They lose. Whether it's by force or whether it is by some sort of argument um, Jesus is always the victor, and that's shown most clearly in his work on the cross, is it not? Man comes against him, nail him to the tree, mock him, bruise him, spit on him, do all that we can to, to utterly humiliate him, kill him, and yet that's, but yet he still wins because he raises, he rises from the dead, and because of that he lives and he rules in a perfection right now. And that has everything to do with the passage that we're talking about today because we're talking about the resurrection um, from the dead. And what does that mean for the believer? You know, and our, our passage today is interesting because, you know, the recipients of this conversation, this question to Jesus regarding the resurrection, they don't have a fully orbed biblical view of the resurrection yet. Number one, because Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And, and his resurrection from the dead ends up saying a lot about this issue of resurrection. 
And then secondly, you know, Paul hasn't written 1 Corinthians 15 yet, which is probably the most helpful tool for the believer regarding the reality of the resurrection and what is it going to be like and all these things like that. And so um, part of what's happening here is that Jesus is, again, playing the part of the prophet because he's relaying to them new information regarding the resurrection that they don't yet fully understand or comprehend. Even when he's done teaching, they're not having a fully, a full-orbed biblical view of the resurrection like we have because we live with further divine revelation than they had at that time. But what Jesus does today in our text is he answers the question of the Sadducees regarding the resurrection and he firmly establishes the reality of it. And if anything, that what we should gather from a passage like this is to know that the resurrection is, is something that the believer has to look forward to. This resurrected body, this eternal body, this incorruptible, imperishable body of which we will get to um, receive and then we will get to live out for all of eternity. Can you imagine a body that never, never gets sick? You're never going to break a bone. You're never going to have to worry about uh, sickness or anything like that. We were talking about it last night um, as a family, and Abigail was like, well, what is it going to look, what are we going to look like? And it's like, I, I don't know, you know? Will we be like a 20-year-old version of me or like the 50-year-old version of me? Like, I, I don't know. What I do know is that it's going to be imperishable. It's going to be uncorrupted. It's going to be ultimately amazing and really, what form I take, I could really care less. It's being in the presence of God for all of eternity, physically, spiritually, to enjoy him forever. That is what we're looking forward to. And that's really the point of the resurrection as well. So Jesus engages with the Sadducees in this passage here. The setting is that his authority is still being challenged, but the gospel is going out from the place of worship, from the temple. There's a new era that's breaking in this gospel era, which Jesus would call the new covenant era as he gets closer to the cross and then the actions of that um, event and then the subsequent life of the church that comes out of his resurrection, the new covenant era of, era of which we live in. And so, um, the, again, the setting is in the temple, the place of worship. He's preaching the gospel. He's established himself as the ultimate authority. But he has another question posed to him today, like he had last week. So let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40 this morning, and then we will work our way together through it. Luke 20, 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God, the Ab- the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dare to ask him any question. You know, I think about the issue of the resurrection, like I said, it coincides well with Jesus' authority and his preaching the gospel. Because when you think about what the gift that we have through Christ in the gospel is that forgiveness in him isn't limited to this life alone, but also has implications for the life to come. The gospel message that he's preaching is about forgiveness of sin. And that's not only the washing away and the pardoning, the excusing of the sin in this life, but has great implications for the life to come. That once you're forgiven, you receive the gospel, you embrace it by faith. At that moment, you're justified. And all sin are are completely washed away, past, present, and future. And we get to begin a relationship with God in which we live in reconciliation with him. There's no more dividing wall of hostility between us and him. In full love and full grace and mercy, he warmly embraces us, brings us into fellowship with him, and that is something that the believer can never lose. And there's going to come a day in which what we look forward to now, what we hold on to, which we experience in ways of types and shadows by his forgiveness and his grace and his love, we will experience in its complete fullness for all of eternity. You imagine what it would be like to to live with him, to no longer be plagued with your sinful nature. But to desire what he desires. To have no competing desires and affections anymore, right? Like for all of us as believers, I confess like, Lord, I, well, I think Romans 7 probably sums it up well. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I keep doing. What a wretched man that I am. I have this, this, these competing affections and competing desires. And I can't wait for the day of which that is completely done away with. And, and all the promises given to me, pronounced to me in the gospel, are finally mine for good and without any hindrance of my sinful nature. We live in that reality now, but we're still longing for it in its full fruition, aren't we? And that's what the resurrection is about. That's what Jesus is is teaching us about in this passage here. We see that um, the Sadducees come to him and they ask him a question. And this is really the first time in the book of Luke, I think really the only time in the book of Luke that the Sadducees are mentioned specifically. They bring to him, and their identifying marker is, then there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. That's what Luke wants us to know. Like, there's other information we can know about the Sadducees, but this is what we need to know about them, at least for this, for right now, for this um, passage. And the issue at hand is, like I said, it's the resurrection. Um, I thought this point was made very well by one of the commentaries that I read. I'll share with you. He says, Belief in the immortality of the soul was widely accepted in the Roman and particularly Greek worlds. 
Throughout verses 34 through 38 of our passage, however, the phenomenon under discussion is not immortality of the soul, but of resurrection. Resurrection is the result of the gift and the power of God. Whereas immortality of the soul regards the soul as an eternal element of life that once freed from the mortal flesh continues in immortal existence. The latter is not a gift from God, but simply an inherent reality of nature and inevitable as dying itself. See, the immortality of the soul, that man had a soul that was going to live forever, was not really highly disputed. Much of that was already agreed upon. They, they knew that if man died, he was, his soul was going to live on forever. The issue that's in dispute here is this resurrection. What is, they, they, they couldn't fathom the idea that a bodily resurrection was going to take place, and a bodily resurrection meant an eternal bodily life lived in conjunction with the eternal immortal soul. And that's the issue at hand here. It's the bodily resurrection. And the Sadducees have an issue with that. They don't believe in it. They came, and those who deny that there is a resurrection. In fact, if you look at the other book that Luke wrote in Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see again the Sadducees, and they were, and they, meaning the, the disciples, they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is the identifying marker of the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. Now, they differ from the Pharisees in that way. The Pharisees believe in a resurrection from the dead. So theologically, these two parties do not agree with one another. And there's actually a lot they don't agree, agree with. You, I think growing up, I always got the picture painted to me that like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all like friends and they hung out together. That's not the case. These two parties did not get along. They had a lot that they disagreed with. But when it comes to the issue of Jesus, they will come together. When you have a common enemy, you will find two parties that don't necessarily agree with one another come together to accomplish their purpose. And neither one of these parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, though they disagree, they have one common goal. The death of Jesus, to, be de to have him delivered up. I mentioned last week, that becomes a predominant theme in these last few chapters of Luke. Ten times it's mentioned that Jesus is going to be delivered up, that he's going to be betrayed. This is the major element of the latter part of the book of Luke. And again, it reminds me of just this, this cosmic spiritual battle that's going on. Ultimately, it comes down to it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. Anything in the kingdom of the world, whether it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, any other religious group, are all under the influence of the God of this world, of Satan. And he's at war, and he hates the God of heaven, the God of creation. He hates Jesus Christ. He hates Christ's beloved bride, the church. He hates the believer. And he will gather together his different factions within the world and bring them together for one common purpose, and that's the destruction of Christ, the destruction of his church, of his people. It's not hard to see when you look around there's virtually, in the school systems and pretty much everywhere you go, there's tolerance for every single religion other than Christianity. It's the one where they say, you have to check your convictions at the door. 
because it's a, it's a, because it's more than just what it is that we're saying from the Bible. It's more than our conviction of, of what the scriptures say. There's a cosmic battle going on of which the kingdom of the world is at war with the kingdom of God, and they are, they're always at war with one another. And anything that's regarding Christianity will be rejected by the world because Satan hates it. But we see Jesus answering their question, interacting with them. Um, their question we see takes place in verses 28 through 33, and it's regarding this issue of marriage. Um, the setting for it, if you want to read it, is in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, and it's this issue of marriage. And if you look at Deuteronomy in its larger context, especially in chapter 25 with this issue of marriage, so if a guy marries a woman and they don't have kids and he dies, then it's the brother's responsibility to marry the woman so they can have children and the line can continue on. Even that is embedded within really the job of the Levite priests. And it was really important for the Levitical priesthood to continue on in its service and its ministry. So if a guy married a woman and he died and didn't have children, who was going to continue on that family line? Who was going to continue to serve in that office of Levitical priest? And so the brother had to rise up and marry the woman. And it's actually, if you go back and read that passage in Deuteronomy 25, there are some pretty um, offensive, I would say, um, implications for the brother that doesn't fulfill his obligation to marry his dead brother's wife. That makes sense. So they have these rules. And the Sadducees, again, you just, you, you kind of get the idea that this is the kind of stuff, right? They're think, they just think of these like really weird theological situations, and that's kind of the reason why they don't believe in the resurrection. Well, okay, well, what if the situation arises where there's a guy that marries this woman, he dies, and he has six more brothers, and they all marry her, and they all die, and none of them have kids, then when they, if the resurrection is really true, then like whose wife is she going to be when they all raise from the dead? I mean, you can kind of see them sitting around and talking about these things, and they're like, yeah, yeah, the resurrection's stupid. We shouldn't believe in that, because what, what about these really weird, like off-the-wall situations that might come about. And it kind of gives you an idea into their, you know, their thinking. Um, and Jesus, you know, will correct them in that. Um, and it's really, I think, the correction comes clearest in Matthew's passage, the parallel passage. Jesus would respond to them in Matthew 22, 29. You are wrong because you, need, because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. When he corrects them in Matthew's parallel version, he says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Your, your thinking is of this world. It's simply <clears throat> human thinking. And I wonder how often do we think along those lines as well? Do, we, do you ever come to certain doctrines of scripture in the Bible where it kind of like the, the divine revealed truth of God's word kind of like is, is abrasive in what it is that you already think to be true or what, you, what it is that you want the Bible to say. And at the end of the day, what's going to win out? Your preconceived idea, your idea of the way that you want things to be, or the divinely revealed truth of God's word 
Do you submit yourself? Do you know the scriptures? And do you submit yourself to the power of God's word? Or do we stubbornly and resistantly hang on to what it is that we want the Bible to say and what it is that we want to believe about the Bible? The believer is one who who constantly lives a life in submission and yielding to the Word of God. Whenever you open this book, you're the student. He is the master. God is the teacher, the author of all life. You come to this book, and you need to have a heart of bowing down, humility, submission, willing to learn and to embrace what it is that the divine author has spoken to us. I mean, what an incredible gift we even have in him giving it to us that we might know him, know his son, Jesus Christ, that we might have salvation, the the message of the gospel clearly written out for us, that we might comprehend it, read it, embrace it, repent of our sin, turn from it, and turn to him. It's an incredible gift that we've been given in the word of God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, there are some people in the crowd, as we've seen in Luke, That when Jesus speaks and he teaches, they're like, he speaks as one who has authority. And they yield and they submit to his teaching. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are just obstinate in their heart. Hearts like stone, foreheads like steel. So stubborn and unwilling to submit and to yield because of the sinfulness that lies within. And I wonder how often we are like that. When we ever come to Jesus or read something within the scripture, and do we yield to him? Or do we fight? Put our foot down. As if you putting your foot down is any threat to God and his power and who he is. So they ask him this question, and again, they have this situation set up, and Jesus answers their question in verses 34, excuse me, um, through 38. He breaks the question down, though, into two separate parts. But again, what he does in the first part, in verses 34 through 36, is he addresses this issue of marriage and having children within the context of resurrection. So he'll get to the issue and the validity of the resurrection itself in a few moments. But first, he addresses their misconceptions. They have the wrong idea about marriage and having children, and he addresses that first. And again, it's what he does. This is what he did last week as well. He took an objection by the Pharisees, and he couched it within a broader and larger theological framework. And he does that again here, too, um, regarding marriage. Uh, with the larger f- the framework in mind, he knows, and, and we're reminded from Scripture, that marriage exists for, the, for procreation, for the continuing on of the human race, and then it had a specific role in the book of Deuteronomy to help the role of the Levites continue to um, their line to go on. It was about purity of the nation and preservation of the nation as well. 
God specifically called his people, do not intermarry with the other, with the other nations, but to only intermarry within Israel to keep us, to keep you pure and to preserve the, the, the national line. And so that's kind of the larger framework that he couches it within. But then he addresses again the, the issue of marriage, at, particularly itself. And Jesus said to them in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So we have this term, the sons of this age. And when he's talking about this age, he's talking about the life that we live here now, these lives that we live on earth, the life of the temporary, the life that is, you know, um, ultimately ends in death, this life of types and shadows, if you will. That's this age. We are given in marriage to one another in this age, in this life. He says, but in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, so he identifies another age, which is different from this one. It's this, it's this age of, of the world, the earthly life that we have here, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, meaning the age to come, the age in which we will live in heaven, the age of the eternal. If this is a life of types and shadows and promises and waiting, then that age is a life of fulfillment and exaltation. And those who go from this life, he says, to this age, to that age, are those who are considered worthy to be able to attain it. And what's interesting is that this phrase, worthy to attain, is used in several other passages of Scripture. It's used in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And it's used, and that's the passage where they, all the disciples gathered together and they say, they count it joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 and 11. And in all three of those passages and here, it's written in what we would call the divine, or the, uh, written in what we would call a divine passive, meaning it's an, it's an act that God is doing. And so he's saying, those who live in this age are given in marriage. Those who by God's doing and by God's working are able to attain to that age are not given in marriage. It's by God's doing, it's by his sovereign work that we, or any of us, anybody, is able to go from this age of death and life here on earth to life in eternity and what is still to come. And it's all his doing, it's all his working. And he says that, um, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor given in marriage. And this is one of the passages in the New Testament that really helps us understand that our marriages are, are limited to this life. That there is no marriage in heaven. That your union with your spouse dissolves when you go into glory for all of eternity. There's no, that marriage is given for this life, for this age, but not for the age to come. And he says this in verse 36. So the end of verse 35. Um, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage for or because they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. We are not given in marriage 
in the age to come. And the reason why is because marriage given in this life is regarding the issue of procreation. He says, listen again in verse 36. They are, they, in the age to come, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. There's no more death. There's no more need or reason to procreate. Now, I know I'm just opening up a whole can of worms and many doors as to like, okay, so then are, are there children in heaven? Are we having children in heaven? How does that happen? Does heaven's population increase? Look, that's not really the point of this text. So don't get sidetracked. But I already know what y'all are thinking because I was thinking the same stuff. Uh, but what he says is the issue is this. In that life, in the age to come, there's no marriage. Marriage is in this life because death reigns in this life. In order for mankind to continue to increase, mankind has to have babies. And if there's something that our church knows about this issue, right? It's about having babies. So, uh, but in the age to come, because there is no more death, there's no more marriage. There's no more procreation. And he says they will be like angels, meaning that we will be eternal, like angels are, um, in our in our nature, in the final form of who we are, we'll be like the angels. Not to say that we're going to be, you know, we're going to have wings or we're going to be like cherubim or seraphim and all those things like that. We're just going to be like them and that we're going to be eternal, like angels are eternal. Really, one of the things I, as I was reading through this though, that the, the section that caught my eye was at the end of verse 36, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. I mean, what a wonderful promise that is. Being sons, being children of the resurrection. Like the assurance of the hope, the knowledge of that when you live your life in this age and you've received the gospel, and you have forgiveness of your sin in Christ, you are guaranteed to be a child of the resurrection and united with him forever. And nothing can stop that and nothing can change that. That he preserves those who are really his and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. He wants them to know and he wants us to know of of the hope, the gift that's given to us in being adopted by him and being preserved by him. Which lays a solid foundation for all pursuits of Christ in this life. I mean, you think about it. What prevents you often from living the way that God calls you to live? And we have our flesh, these temptations, but oftentimes we have fear, we doubt, and we worry. If I really begin to embrace, like, the gospel, what is that life going to look like? And we can't really fathom, we don't really understand. And it's what's, what, what's happening here is there's something rooted in our understanding of the gospel that's incomplete or deficient. 
We tend to think that, yeah, God loved me enough at one point to pardon me and grant me forgiveness. And he will love me enough when I go to be with him. But in this intermediate time, I'm really kind of like a mess and a wreck. And, I, and, and, and if I really begin to embrace the truth of the gospel and the goodness of God, that will God really continue to love me as much as he says he loves me in the gospel? And the answer is, of course, yes. That in, 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 in bringing you to him, why else would he forgive you at the moment when you came to know him, prepared an eternity of you with him, and that goodness, and then not also promise to be with you and to give us all things that we need for life and godliness in the in-between time, in today and in tomorrow? The goodness and the love of God continues to be, God is not like that leaky faucet. You know, just a little bit of love, drip. A little bit of mercy, drip. I've always understood we need to understand God as the overflowing fountain that never ceases of mercy and goodness and kindness and love and forgiveness. You begin to embrace that and that will not give you a license to want to go and live how you want. That will utterly undo you and humble you and you will want to live your life in reverence to the one who has loved you so well. Sons of the resurrection, children of the resurrection. Do you think of yourself in that way? Being a child of the resurrection. And so he answers the Sadducee's question regarding marriage in verses 34 through 36, but then in 37 through 38, he addresses the, the, the issue of the reality of the resurrection itself. And at this point, I was kind of tempted to, you know, you, you look at 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the point in the sermon where I'm like, man, this could really turn into a sermon of 1 Corinthians 15. So we're not going to really talk about much of 1 Corinthians 15 at all, but I would highly encourage you to read through it. Read through what the scripture says regarding this reality of the resurrection of which Jesus touches on here. He says in verse 37, so he answers this issue of marriage and giving into marriage. He, so he answers their question specifically in response to marriage um, in this age, children. But then in verse 37 through 38, he answers the question, the, the larger issue of resurrection in and of itself. And he says in 37, but that the dead are raised, you need to know that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, so he's talking about Exodus chapter 3 here where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. What Jesus does is really remarkable because one of the things that the Sadducees hold to is that they only acknowledge the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as being authoritative or divinely inspired. So where does Jesus go? To the book of Exodus. One of the places where they would, without a doubt, have to say that this is divinely inspired. So he's, he's going to where they are. 
And he pulls this passage out of Exodus chapter 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he uses this text to prove that the resurrection from the dead is real and true by identifying the God who is speaking to Moses as the God of Abraham, as the God of Isaac, and as the God of Jacob. In essence, he is the living God who is the God of the living. Moses, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been gone and dead by the time Moses, his ministry came around. But in God's mind, he communicates to Moses that these men still live. Because they live before him. The living God, the God of life, is the one that entered into covenant relationship with them. And when they died, their souls were simply ushered into his presence to enjoy him forever. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon and Corey Ten Boom and William Carey and Mike Tegler, they're all together in the same place right now, living well, more alive now than they were when they were here. And they're, why? Because God is the living God. How does God most often identify himself in the Old Testament? To his people, I am Yahweh, right? He uses his personal name as he introduces himself or reminds himself, reminds his people of who he is. He is Yahweh. He is the God, the living God, the one that interacts. If you were at Sunday school this morning, we were reminded of how God interacts with his people consistently because he is the God of love. He lovingly comes into our lives, and not just momentarily, but he is always present, always showering his love, always showering his goodness, always showering his mercy because he is the God of life. And those whom he brings into fellowship with him reconciled, pardoned because of the resurrection, right? I mean, Christ lives. He rose from the grave. And those who live in covenant relationship with him always live in covenant relationship with him. Whether it's us now here or those who have already gone before us to be with him and are in his presence in, in soul, in spirit, or in the time to come in which all of those who are in Christ are united with eternal bodies, with their eternal spirit for all time. God never ceases to be their God. I am your God and you will be my people. And he's driving home the fact that the God of life who appeared in the burning bush to Moses is the same God that entered into covenant relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and is doing it with Moses and has done it through the gospel with each and every one of us who know him. The living God continues to live and interact with you and me regularly, like consistently, like there's never a moment where it's not happening. The resurrection is such a rich and wonderful doctrine because it's not just about, oh, cool, I get this eternal body someday. 
No, it's about unification and being in the presence of God to worship him and enjoy him forever. Like there's part of us in my, in like, it, you know, spirit and your soul, you know, you, the moment that this body is gone, this tent is done away with and you go to be with him, it's just, it's, it's pure wonder and, and worship. You know, but they're all awaiting the resurrected body. And we will all be joined together and receive it at one time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's living indicates the promise of a future resurrection in which the entire person enjoys God. We see that in verse 39 and 40, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. That's probably the least they could have said. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. And again, authority established concretely. One of the things that I thought about, so, you know, he's answering the objection of the, of the Sadducees, but he's actually, by doing so, in agreement with the Pharisees. The group he had just rebuked, now he's actually agreeing with them. And it just reminds me that what Jesus does and what he loves is truth. He doesn't care that by correcting the bad theology of the Sadducees, that the truth of that is going to then, you know, be a truth that the Pharisees share. They may, may, they may agree on that issue. They've got a lot of other stuff that they don't agree on. But Jesus is after truth. What he cares about is the truth being taught and the truth being spoken. And I wonder about that for our own lives. How, how consistently do we pursue truth? Is God's word really the truth and the standard of truth for your life, for my life? Do you read it and do you yield yourself to it because it's true? And then do you identify ways in which the truth of God's word cuts against the grain or cuts against who you are? And do you, again, yield to it or do you not? Is God's truth situational in your life? Or is it consistent? Truth is truth. And it's constant. It's fixed. Jesus saw and lived out the truth because he was the truth. Do we hold the truth in that high of esteem as well and do we apply it to all areas of life in which we walk? Does the truth of God's word come to bear upon every sphere of the life in which you live? Think about that and that's convicting for me. Um, as we prepare to take communion together, again, I was reminded of a couple things that I think by way of encouragement, what the resurrection does is it really increases my affection for him because I see how wonderfully and completely God has given me life. I mean, the, the communion table is a wonderful reminder of that, isn't it? You have life because Christ offered up his 
And His resurrection ensures, promises our resurrection. There's a tremendous amount of hope and joy and encouragement to be taken from that so that we might then live the way that God calls us to live. Because eternal life is ours and our bodies yet to come are incorruptible. Let us grow to hate the sin that corrupts. Because I am going to have a resurrected body for all of eternity, let me grow to hate that which is currently corrupting in my body. I think of 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do I proactively abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against my soul because I know that there's a promised resurrection coming. I really find the resurrection to be one of the greatest motivators for godliness, for holiness. As we approach the table again, this is a time for worship. This is a time for us as believers to gather together to worship the Lord in this way. We celebrate a victorious, resurrected Christ. His body and blood offered up, but alive because he lives, we continue to live. So the elements are on the table behind you. Feel free to grab them. You return back to your seat. Have a little bit of time for prayer, meditation, and then we'll partake of our communion time together shortly. Our communion passage this morning is Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And so we partake of the cracker together. We're reminded that it represents the body of Christ that was offered up for us. And come to Him by faith and believe in Him, which reminds us also of the resurrection and how He continues to live, that those of us who are in Him continue to live as well. And so we partake of the cracker together, being reminded of His body that was offered up so that we might have life. He goes on and says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we partake of the juice together. We're reminded that it represents the shed blood of Christ, but it's his pledge, it's his promise to, to partake of it anew again with us in heaven because we are grafted into his covenant. And so we partake of the juice together, being reminded of his blood that was shed and his life that was offered up so that we might have life. Gracious Father, we thank you for sending your beloved son, faithful to the work and to the task, to live the perfect life, to have both eyes fixed upon truth all the way to the cross, obedient unto death, because of his life offered up for us, his burial, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we have life. And you fully intend for your children to know, to hold on to, to embrace, and to rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. The God of life has given us life. We have that life in Christ now, and we will have it for all of eternity. So then help us, Lord, to live this life that we have in Christ for the praise of your glorious grace. We love you, Lord. We love you and we thank you for your love for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us for our last song. Remember the wounds that heal the death that brings us. 
Just close us with 1 Corinthians 50, 50, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of the of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, the reality is, is that death, the sting has been taken away. There is no victory for death for those of us who are in Christ. We eagerly await your return. We eagerly desire to be with you. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to be solid, to be immovable, to be unshakable people whose hearts are filled with worship and love and proclaim your excellencies, who look to the resurrected Christ to supply whatever it is that we need in every hour and every moment and every station of life because we know you are faithful to give what we need to help us to continue to endure and to pursue you and to magnify your name. And so that is what we are thankful for and we ask that you would help us see. We love you, Father. Again, thank you for this time of worship and it's our prayer that you have been magnified and glorified and that your truth has been proclaimed. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.